Hi, I'm Paul Shrimp. And I'm Jeffrey Roach. Welcome to Microdosing, where we look at small specific things, such as a product, business, or person, that represents a bigger trend in healthcare. In this series, we'll be focused on the healthcare labor shortage, and I'm excited to team up with Jeffrey, who's a prominent leader when it comes to all things people in healthcare. Thanks, Paul. And some say it's not just a labor shortage, but also a healthcare labor crisis. In this series, we have a lot of wonderful conversations lined up that gets at exactly why this isn't just a labor issue, but rather a multi-dimensional one around employee experience, digitization of workflows, and new business models to make healthcare workers' lives better, healthcare companies more stable, and ultimately deliver better quality of care to all patients. We hope you enjoy. We're joined today by Jan Jones-Shank, Executive Dean Emeritus of Western Governors University and the former Senior Vice President of the Michael Levitt School of Health at Western Governors University. Jan, it's so wonderful to have you here with with Paul and I. Thanks, Jeffrey. I appreciate the time and the opportunity to be with you today. If you could be so kind to share a little bit more about you and the work you've done. So I uh, joined Western Governors University uh, roughly 15 years ago not having an academic background necessarily. I didn't come out of academia, but I came out of healthcare, was educated as a nurse, uh, worked for a long time in nursing and healthcare administration in a community hospital and in other healthcare organizations, and then went on and did a lot of national policy work through the American Nurses Association. I was president of the American Nurses Credentialing Center, and during that work, I became very interested in the validation of competencies through it, which is a big part of the work you do when you're doing specialty certifications, for example, which we were doing at, at ANCC. And we took that work internationally. We worked a lot in the UK and in other countries, South Korea, et cetera, to try and help bring that whole message of how do you validate competencies. Also, during that time, we did a lot of work on magnet hospitals. That's obviously the place where the magnet recognition program resides. When I was president, we had 10 magnet hospitals. I think today it's approaching something like 600 magnet hospitals. So we were also looking at things that made a difference for work environments. So we established standards and we were measuring the outcomes of those standards relative to work environments. So when I came to Western Governors University, I brought together that mixture of thoughts and experiences to think about the work, nursing workforce differently, really the whole healthcare workforce differently. And to do that by using competency-based education as a model for learning, as opposed to the traditional time-bound, time-based learning models that we're all familiar with. Jen, one of the things that's interesting as you talk about that, that I- I want to bring into this conversation is that Paul and I've talked a lot about the workforce crisis. And when we talk about the workforce crisis in all aspects of healthcare, clinical and non-clinical, because uh, there's a leadership crisis too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have Absolutely. enough people that want to be CEOs. We don't have enough people that want to be CNOs. You've also been, I mean, not only have you been at one of the largest universities, built one of the largest healthcare programs, uh, second to none, you have also been a hospital trustee. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Uh, curious to get your thoughts. Paul and I've talked about, I often say that in this crisis, one of the areas that I feel needs to be doing a better job are the trustees. Because to me, governance is fiduciary responsibility. And I feel like when we don't take care of our people from a culture, at the end of the day, 
the trustees need to step in on the executive team. And so I want to get your thoughts on what you think could be done differently there. Yeah. Oh, I 100% agree with that. I think there's a lot of, in my mind, about whether the role of the trustee is fiduciary in total or whether it is has a higher order of responsibility to community outcomes. And that's where I think we may have missed the boat in governance over the last decade. While the, to some extent, the environment has been focused on perhaps revenue enhancement, revenue enhancement in and of itself is not a bad thing, but its purpose has been lost. And that is, its fundamental purpose really is to serve the entire community. And I will say this, given the disparities in healthcare, we're not serving the entire community. And we're not keeping our eye on the ball about what those outcomes actually need to be. So I'm a big fan of the model that community health centers use, where 50% of all members of the board are patients of the community. Having served as a trustee myself, I know that I was one person with one perspective, and often I was the only person in the room who had that perspective. And so I think that that tendency to perhaps have a board where you've got one representative who's a nurse and one representative who's a patient and one rep, it marginalizes the voices that need to be heard to really create enough energy around setting the standards, setting the goals. Those are great points because there is this interesting... Um, rotation from the board down to leadership, as I would argue um, qualitatively, that a lot of hospital leadership, if we think about the traditional acute care system, are really good operators. They're probably really good clinicians. But when you look at other industries that are essentially service oriented, let's call healthcare a service oriented, you don't often see that board composition. Like if I go to hospitality or restaurants, there's actually a very strong people element and training element and leadership element, but there seems to be a little bit of a vacuum in that space at the top. And it sounds like you would agree with that or if not, love your, your context around that. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would say that healthcare is first and foremost a people business, but the people leadership has not been reflected largely in the governance groups that I've been a part of and that I've seen. I also think that that's what sets the standards again for operation. That's what sets the environment, the tone. And just as an example, when caregiving and caregivers are seen as a cost center, that sets a tone for everything that organization is going to do. We saw this recently in the article the New York Times did about Adventist Health System, where the goal was to improve revenue. If that becomes your goal, every mm-hmm. else, everything else falls aside. And we saw some big workforce challenges emerge from that. Which is funny because I could take a, another fiscal lens at the workforce and make the argument that it's the largest asset you have mm-hmm. and how are you using it to deliver a better experience to ensure retention of that asset. But it's fascinating that it's being viewed as an expense. I mean, it is costly, but so is an asset, but you, you treat the preservation of an asset differently than uh, an OPEX budget, but, but any thoughts or builds there? 
Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's really a fundamental problem. And one of the things that we were going to talk about today is what has happened in the last decade. I would say that is the number one thing that has happened in the last decade is we've, uh, and I'll use your words, Paul, because I think they're exactly right. The lens has been shifted. We all know that labor is a huge part of any healthcare organization's budget. But looking at it as an asset completely changes the way that asset is managed, the way that asset is earned at the end of the day. And I think the workforce in healthcare, my experience, there's a lot of pride, there's a lot of commitment, there's a lot of passion. And those are also assets that have been somewhat finished in the last decade. And I think leaders, some leaders might say, oh, but we, we've recognized the healthcare heroes during the pandemic. But that recognition has truly felt like lip service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's, it, it, there, there are times and there are ways for leaders to be much more bold about recognizing the assets of the people. Um, at WGU, you created the Institute for Advancing mm-hmm. Health Value. And uh, I would argue that most healthcare systems today haven't realized that that value mm-hmm. is also the workforce. And if you would literally translate, and I mean, we've had this conversation, but if you would translate to quality, if you would translate to patient safety, uh, if you would translate to workplace violence, you mm-hmm. could go on and on and on. You could see where we haven't truly embrace that. But I guess the question is, as part of that, if we do have people listening that now we've got to do something, what would be one action that you would encourage people to actually think about that would maybe hope to make people actually realize that we've got to do something about this in a different way than we're currently doing? I would say that uh, having a set of shared values Developing from the ground up a set of shared values for an organization that includes a commitment to community is really an important place to start. It's not about a financial framework. It's really about creating value in all parts of the organization, understanding how those value contributions uh, are essential to the whole, essential to making the whole enterprise uh, work and work effectively. In my opinion, no healthcare CEO should make more than a million dollars a year. I know that won't be a popular statement, um, but they certainly could acquire certain bonuses, and those bonuses would be entirely dependent on the health of the community. So changing the health status of a community, in my opinion, is worth bonusing for, right? But that requires gaining the hearts and minds of the workforce, right? You don't have the hearts and minds of the workforce. You're not going to change the health of your community that you're serving. Um, So it's all part, it's all integrated. It's all part of a greater whole, but you've got to have those shared values, those shared commitments. And we know that uh, racism and, and hierarchy have been rife in healthcare for a long time. Those are some things that need to be, Uh, addressed head-on in those shared values. Those are great points, really great points. Um, And I would love to shift gears, and if we could do anything, or what we call magic wand time, if you could go back 10 years and could change anything and have an impact on the trajectory of where we are today, what would be that one thing that you would love to go back and change? 
you have to change the, uh, the leadership tone as well as the governance environments. You know, ca- capitalism ha- has many great attributes, but it's not right for every system. And in the case of healthcare and social systems, capitalism in its pure, unadulterated form takes on a, a life that steers us away from our fundamental goals. And uh, so while we still talk about nonprofit and healthcare, uh, definition of what that means in terms of community benefit uh, has been framed in financial terms. Uh, I think that's a mistake. I think the lens that we have chosen in healthcare, which is largely financial, it's financial whether you're talking about value-based care, it's financial whether you're talking about, um, as we spoke earlier, the cost centers, it's financial. If we talk about community benefit, where you have to contribute so much money to the community, all of those are financially framed. And if we had taken a different approach 10 years ago, we would be in a very different place today. It's not too late. We just have to have the will to do it now. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, a bear that I've been gently poking to see what happens with it. But capitalism, I go to my Econ 101 class, which is I have the mm-hmm. option of walking away from a transaction and I know the price before a transaction and I'm directly paying exactly for right. it. In healthcare, all three of those go away. I don't have a choice not to get, you know, my broken leg fixed. I don't know the price until after the transaction. And by the way, somebody else is paying for it where it's some combination of premiums, deductibles, and whatnot, but it erodes the foundation of good capitalistic thinking in our model, which to your point, we, we have to step back and realize when we're putting a capitalistic shove into something, is it the ecosystem that's going to thrive in? And I think there's some big conversations to be had there. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Janet, as we think about this issue from the perspective of uh, some level of optimism, and I will say that I love your idea of really um, what I would say in many ways is returning to what our community hospitals did well for so long around anchor institution work, which uh, obviously, you know, something I've always been very passionate about. But um, when we look at uh, 2033, what gives you some optimism about this challenge? Well, there's a lot of things to be hopeful about. So first of all, on the education side, I think we're seeing a lot more interest in higher ed reform and higher ed reform for healthcare providers is essential, critical, so important. So we're starting to see a greater emphasis on skills and competencies. We saw the American Association of Colleges of Nursing come out in support of competency-based education for nursing programs. Medicine has been doing this already. That's very positive. I think the we haven't fully realized the lessons that we learned from the pandemic, but there are some really good lessons there in telehealth, in remote care provision. I would like to see in the future, in 2033, a return, as you referenced earlier, Jeffrey, to communities. We've got to get back to the communities. We've got to stop trying to drive people into these monolithic, expensive, 
high-rise healthcare organizations that are not deeply connected to the communities that they serve. I think if we make that transition back to communities, that will also reinvigorate the healthcare work. I think it will bring greater joy and practice. And I think if healthcare organizations, their leadership and their governance can get closer to the communities they serve and to the workforce they need through different governance models, we can be in a very different place in the next decade. Awesome. Thank you very much for that. Obviously, thank you for, for joining us here on Microdosing. Uh, appreciate you know all of your incredible insights as it relates to this issue and obviously appreciate all, the, all of the work you've done to really help prepare the nursing workforce, but also the healthcare workforce in your leadership at WGU. So thanks again, Jan. Pleasure to be with both of you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Microdosing. If you'd like more content like this, go to our website at md-pod.com. And that will triage you to all the common podcast platforms and social media pages to follow us. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.